Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Helen John with A Year in a Namibian Village. Hi everyone, thanks very much for coming out this evening. What I wanted to do was give you a bit of a, an overview of the background to my project and then take you on a little sort of whistle-stop tour through the homestead that I lived in for a year and then towards the end think about some of the ups and downs of the experience that I had while I was over there. So I will start off by giving a bit of an overview of where I was. So Namibia was uh, a German colony and then run by South Africa under the apartheid system. The Avambo region, which I visited up in the, the north there, is an area that I've had an association with for about 20 years. Prior to becoming a professional teacher in the UK, I went out and was a volunteer teacher over in the Avambo area in 1997. Relatively newly independent Namibia. They gained independence in 1990 and they were very short of English teachers and so went over there for a year. And then the association has continued. So ultimately the homestead that I lived in for a year is the family of somebody I knew from, from back then teaching in 97. So this is an area that's been colonised and Christianised and in the statistics it's, it's reported as a sort of 95%, 95 to 100% Christian region. The religious context is what I was looking at. So the, the project was looking into the interaction between African traditional religion and Christianity. In the literature that I'd read throughout uh, this sort of long history with the region was suggesting that Christianity had displaced the traditional religious systems and almost viewing those as kind of monolithic entities that might be exchanged and suggesting that traditional religious practice and traditional religious beliefs were no longer apparent in the area and that people both professed to be Christians and no longer practiced or believed any of their traditional heritage. So that can be sort of summed up in this quotation from one of the comprehensive studies of the region. Uh, from the perspective of the 1990s, more than 90% of the population was Christian and virtually all indigenous religious practice from male initiation to rainmaking to offering sacrifices to ancestors had vanished. So looking at the relationship then between the Bible and Christianity and biblical interpretation on the one hand and African traditional religion, if, if there can be sort of such a thing, and its context within Avambo culture, Avambo life more generally. So I was looking for aspects of conflict that might have resulted in the displacement that seemed to have been talked about or areas perhaps of coexistence, compatibility or even sort of hybridisation. The literature suggested that systems of good magic, bad magic, witchcraft had vanished, were obsolete. Those were the sorts of terms that were used. And that it wasn't really worth investigating. It wasn't really worth doing fieldwork and working with local communities to find out. Because either it was suggested they were Christianised and therefore didn't know or engage 
with their traditional heritage. Or even if there were remaining people who practice traditional religion, that they wouldn't be willing to engage with an outsider or disclose information to, say, somebody like me going in and looking into the context. So that's what I was looking at. I, I didn't really find that to be sort of a satisfactory assessment of the situation on several levels. I, I'd looked into various sort of small-scale studies that seemed to be suggestive of a, a more sort of subtle interplay, but also because of the experiences that I'd had right back from 97, where I, I'd spoken to people and they'd talked about their identity as Christians, but that they still had a sacred fire in the homestead. Or, you know, that sort of interrelationship between the systems that seemed to be far more complex and worthy of, of investigation. So I headed out then during my PhD to look for evidence of the persistence of African traditional religion. Um, that's very much in, in sort of a scare quotes. It's, it's, it's not really a satisfactory description, but it's the best I can offer. Local culture might, might be a, another option. So I didn't want to just use books and texts and that sort of thing. I wanted to discuss with people on the ground, but also to be a participant observer, to actually live there for a decent period of time and work out you know, what, what people were doing, how their lives, their practices and their diversity of practice might exhibit aspects of local culture, traditional religion that, that persisted. And I did that both through living there for an extended period of time in a host family, but also by running groups, discussion groups. So I'm a biblical studies specialist, so the groups would focus on, on the one hand, discussing particular themes to do with local culture, be that perspectives on the landscape or engagement with spirits and ancestors, that sort of thing. And then we would also look at biblical texts and, and see how the participants interpreted to see whether they would interpret with local culture and traditional religion as, as a lens through which to understand the texts. Because for me, with the Bible and biblical interpretation at the heart of Christianity and the groups taking place in the church building, that would probably be the ultimate expression of the two things coexisting and traditional religion still happening, local culture in the background. So I was up in this northern region. So on the satellite image, you can see that road in the far top right hand corner and then basically with no signs whatsoever there was a particular lamp post with a wire tied around the top which was my cue to turn off the road and then there's, there's just a sort of network of sand tracks that comes down into the village centre here. Satellite image is quite helpful that is the actual homestead um, to see the, the kind of structure that it was. The reason I'm focusing on the homestead is that if, if you're thinking as I was about African traditional religion, there's no church, there's no sort of building in which people worship per se. The homestead has been said to be the sort of nucleus of traditional values. So it made sense to focus the bulk of my research on this structure. It's a multitude of huts and blocks and different areas enclosed by a fence and a maze of passageways in the middle, surrounded by farmland, a cattle kraal, and then two 
agricultural processing areas, I don't know what you'd call them, where the grain is stamped, where the melons are chopped. So the main entranceway comes into the east and then there's also a small gate out to the west. The village is structured like that. A few things in the centre of the village, a church, a school, little bars um, where you could buy a few basic goods, but predominantly where people go to drink. And then the homestead satellite style around the, the centre of the village, each with their own farmland around the homestead. So I thought we'd have a, um, a brief tour of the homestead. I, I'm just going to take you through the different areas and say some things about maybe the symbolic importance of some of the aspects, the gendered structure of the homestead, things like that. The homestead that I lived in was a very basic uh, version, let's say, socioeconomically the family I was living with were at one end of the village scale. It's created very much of, out of the landscape around it rather than bringing in modern materials. The main entrance is symbolically very important. It faces east and every homestead entrance in this region will face east because that is the direction of the good spirits. The bad spirits will be to the west and that other entrance then always has to be closed. This entrance point also moved, ritually moved, if the head of the homestead dies. There is a sense in which the fence protects the inside, the essentially pure land within, from what is perceived as impure, dirty, dark or dangerous land outside, more so beyond the farmed or the tamed environment around. So whilst this, when I first arrived at least, it's not the case now, this entranceway was always open and the western side always closed, the fence was sighted and the western gate was sighted as necessary for security. And although that was made just as a straightforward claim, it's arguable that there's nothing to secure the homestead against for, you know, for somebody like me, to my eyes. Because the eastern gate is open, so anyone can come in anyway, or anything. There's no wild animals in the area anymore. And anyway, you've left the eastern door open, so... It doesn't really matter. But ritually or symbolically, it's very important that that fence is maintained, that the western gate is kept closed, and that if the household head dies, this entranceway would be moved, I don't know, perhaps to there or perhaps to here, it would remain on the eastern side, so that the deceased householder can no longer find their way in, because the usual way that they would enter the homestead is no longer available to them. So symbolically, these entranceways and the perimeter fence are very important in terms of traditional values. So this is the western gate, preventing the spirits of the west from coming in. I was told every single day, make sure you put the gate across. It leaned over the opening. It could have been kicked down or, or pushed to one side. So again, I think just a, a symbolic closure and one example of the sense that, that restless spirits or that deceased people would enter the homestead and, and disrupt the order and the structure that had been created and was being maintained within. I suppose the next area would be that once you come in would be a specific area for receiving visitors. 
Just as the land from the outside is dangerous or dark or dirty, as you get progressively further into the homestead, you're coming into areas which are more and more restricted. So there's a specific formal visitor reception area. So various different gendered spaces as well. One of the ways in which the homestead is gendered is uh, in accommodation blocks. The girls' accommodation block, my block at the back there, the grandparents' block, and the picture is taken from the young men's accommodation block. So various different areas for specific groups of people. And household maintenance or the household organisation itself is gendered as well. So it is the, the woman's responsibility to maintain the household, whereas it's the man's responsibility to look after the animals. So each of the huts would have a particular function, whether it's storage, sleeping, um, cooking, etc., etc. So there'd be an internal cooking hut and you'd have an external cooking area as well. So there would have been historically a sacred fire in that external cooking area that would have been perpetually maintained. And if it went out, that would have been very significant. Nowadays, I've only had one report of people having or maintaining a sacred fire. It was a subsistence living environment, so great care taken to store food, to maintain provisions across the year, uh, storage in clay pots, whether that be palm nuts, beans, etc., etc., and then external storage for grain. And it's the woman's responsibility again over agriculture and not only the output, but also the management of resources to sustain the family through the whole 12 months. It's a very industrious place, the homestead, creating not only grains and beans and squash from the land around, but also things at various points of the year growing in and around the homestead, such as gourds or pumpkins, and then engaging with the cash economy through the production of palm wine, uh, that sort of thing. The children also were heavily involved, not only in maintaining, but also in, in running the household. So I spent a lot of time with the children. Sometimes they had more time than the adults to spend with me, but they, their daily chores were limitless, essentially, and they were part of a, very much part of a workforce, hence why older children are, by the state, sent away to senior schools which are boarding so that they are relieved of their duties. Pounding was another connection to the spirit world in the sense that restless spirits coming back in could be heard pounding grain in the pounding hut or in the pounding area. That was one of the activities that was cited as the way that you would know that, that somebody had returned. There were prescribed activities to send them on their way. So a ritual meal would be prepared, a chicken cooked in the traditional way, laid out with a porridge made from the grain, left in a particular place, prescribed by a traditional healer, so that the spirit would be sent on their way and would no longer return and disturb the homestead. The animals, though, were the area of the male members of the homestead. So the grandfather's responsibility as the head of the household, was looking after the animals. And then when it came to slaughter, for example, at Christmas, then it would be the young men who would deal with that activity. But that was very rare, rare occasion that any of the animals would be slaughtered. 
The sort of gendered activity would be maintenance of the household. I got laughed at because I tried to help when fencing was, was being taken down and reconstructed. It wasn't immediately apparent to me, but that was a male activity. I suppose it's the fence that really signifies that the homestead previously uh, in ethnographic data detailed as something that separates the controlled, pure, clean interior of the homestead from the dangerous outside. That seems to be as apparent as ever in maintaining the security, symbolic or otherwise. And they, these are made out of local materials in this case. The fronds from the palm trees are cut, shaving off the greenery and then um, constructing these fences. But that requires constant maintenance and therefore people are generally moving towards where they can afford it, sort of corrugated tin or breeze block constructions of walls so that it doesn't have to be turned over every year when it gives way to, to water or, or to parasites. And that purity context continues keeping out weather spirits effectively there are verbal commands to try to drive off whirlwinds or lightning or whatever that might encroach on the safety of the homestead. But there's certain sort of ambivalence about the land beyond the homestead because, yes, it's cited as dark and dirty and dangerous, but it's also a great provider, whether of wild spinach or pasture land, grazing and ultimately land to create the crops on. The mainstay of, of the homestead activity is focused on agriculture, on grain production. One of the things I was interested in was the worldview behind subsistence living in the closest you might come to, to a sort of pre-industrial context. So there was a level of mechanisation, industrialization, but very rarely. So the sort of tractor would do the rounds of all the homesteads. Um, I sort of got involved where I could. I sort of tried to try everything. Something I couldn't really get involved with was too much of what the men were doing. As I said, obviously, a very gendered society. And the grandfather was mainly occupied with his cattle, as most of the men in the village were. So that had, uh, you know, quite a considerable impact on the project I was doing. As any fieldwork, you know, the impact is who are you and therefore what, what can you achieve being who you are. I saw the cattle, you know, spent time with the grandfather, but had really very little to do with his occupation. So the men herded. That meant to a large extent they were very uninvolved in my project, particularly in the group activities where we'd have discussion groups, whereas 15 women might turn up between 10 and 50 children might turn up. So I had men's group, children's group, women's group. The men, the most I ever had, no, the total I had over the groups that I ran was three, and they were all from one family. He was one of them, and he dragged his brother and his cousin along or something, because he's so nice. You know, not only are they busy taking their animals off to pasture land or off into the bush to graze them, but also it's a separated society. So my house, uh, basically a breeze block construction with a tin roof next to the western gate, and um, an oven, I think it would be fair to call this house. It had no ceilings and therefore it took the full force of the sun, uh, as did I. I, I p paid for its construction so that I wasn't being a burden on the family, but also because I, I know myself so that I had the sort of privacy and the space 
to do the work that I needed to do. But it really was very difficult to get away from the heat and the, the kind of paralyzing nature of that heat. That Particularly when I first arrived, it was probably about 45 degrees. There's nowhere to go. If you go inside, you're probably hotter than if you're outside. There's very few trees that actually give you any shade. The palm trees you get no shade from whatsoever. So yeah, sometimes my task for the day was just sit really still and hope that I didn't expend too much energy. Because I, I did, I found it genuinely difficult to work at points to all, you know, to sort of do what I was thinking of as work. Yeah, I suppose the first, certainly the first six months was occupied by more just living. And I think that's a challenge in itself as well to allow yourself to do what maybe back here would feel like doing nothing. So yes, coping, coping with the heat and writing a diary, watching. The grandmother was fantastic. You know, I'd explained to her that I was really interested in three particular themes, in food and the body, in um, sort of spirits and ancestors, and in space and place. And so whenever she was doing something, whether it was craft-wise or food-wise, something she you know, thought I probably wouldn't know about, then she'd come and fetch me and show me what she was doing. <coughs> so, yeah, it was more sort of observation, participation where I could, and writing a very careful diary of not only what I was doing, but things that I recognised to me to be culturally very unfamiliar, whilst they were still very unfamiliar, before they became sort of more normalised. So, yeah, that was my, my kind of area. And in, in some ways, I think that sectioning myself off, which was an attempt at sort of, not an attempt at sensitivity, but an attempt at not burdening the family sort of financially or otherwise with my presence, was both good and bad. It, in some ways, made it easier for me that I could extract myself and have some kind of quiet moments. On the other hand, it must have contributed to what was a, a heavy sense of isolation at points. But then it also, I also had a constant flow, as you can imagine, with living in that kind of environment, a constant flow of people, particularly small people, who wanted to know what I was doing at every moment of every day. And if I wasn't up, when the sun came up, why not? And come and get me up. Or if I was ill, grandmother would come and tell me to just get out of my house and, you know, get on with the day. So that was fair enough. It's much like my mother would do. So I just wanted to mention, I suppose, a few ups and downs, and those really would be isolation, which I, I've mentioned already, contributed to not least by my vehicle or lack of. I found the isolation a challenge, not only socially and to do with the language, because only one of the children really spoke some English. The grandparents spoke none at all. I had learned some Oshindonga, which is the local language, but it's not a language that you can get textbooks on, etc., etc. So I couldn't do a course in it. I couldn't. I just had to teach myself what I what I could. So I, I got to a functional level, but couldn't have meaningful conversations. And I think that's really difficult. With my group work, I had a translator who would come in from a local town. And the vehicle, I, you know, I think most of the difficulties that I encountered doing field work were self-imposed, not in the sense that I brought them upon myself, but they were there by virtue of who I am as a Westerner, as a woman, as an independent woman. I think if you are someone who's going to go out and do this kind of thing, the chances are you're probably quite strong-willed, you're probably quite independent. Those may, and in my case sometimes, did clash with the values within that homestead, I had to put myself into a 
structure of seniority, a gendered community, and, and, and sort of habituate myself to that. And my own natural instincts don't necessarily sit easily within that context. Um, so language was certainly one of them. I went to school with, um, with grade one on the small chairs and everything. So right down here with the five-year-olds. Um, so I did that for three months to try and improve my language, which was great. They spent most of the time laughing at me. You know, that, that certainly made, made a great deal of difference. To try to, yeah, try to not only um, integrate myself more into the homestead, but also integrate myself more into the community. The gender issue, I, I've sort of mentioned that enough really, but um, I had to follow the grandmother's rules according to what I should do, you know, even as a sort of 35, I can't remember how I was when I was doing this. Uh, yeah, I must have been around 35, 36, something like that. You know, I had to be effectively one of her children and do exactly what she told me. So I was always in by sunset. I did not go certain places on my own. I went to the bars with her or whoever that I was allowed to go to and not to the other ones that I was not allowed to go to. So, yeah, I had to play by the rules. That did ultimately mean there were a couple of clashes. I adore her. She's amazing. Um, so, Meme Maria, my grandmother over there. And it's fantastic. But we, we did butt heads sometimes because it mainly just misunderstandings, I think. So, I think ultimately most of that comes down to, you know, I, I'm an individualist because I come from an individualist context. Put an individualist in a collectivist and ultimately there's going to be, you know, there's going to be problems. Crossed wires and uh, it's going to be, you know, become difficult. And then I suppose gifting was a really, like gifting and sort of transactional behaviour was a, a really interesting thing and something that I struggled with. I was given this chicken, the golden chicken, which um, gave birth to a load of chicks which it subsequently suffocated. So we ate the chicken in the end uh, because it was just not, not productive. But gifting was interesting. I found that, and this may have been because I was a Westerner, I found that people asked a lot of me and frequently. And I found that very draining. But then once I'd come back and continued, obviously, to read more about Bambo culture, you know, gifting doesn't work in the same way in every context. And one of the ways in which it operates in this context is that asking things from people is a way of reinforcing social bonds. Whereas I might think, you know, I would reinforce a bond by maybe gifting you something. In other contexts, it works the other way around, where I would reinforce a bond by asking you for something and you would show that we still care about each other by conceding. So I think those kinds of things, a simple, you know, flicked switch. If that switch had been flicked before I went, certain things would have been a lot easier. But amazing things, amazing ups. Going to loads of weddings. This is the, the ceremony in the church. It sort of feels very conservative. The dress, you know, the men are in suits, the women are in westernised white dresses. But then move across back to the homestead, back to that nucleus of traditional values. We've all changed into our contemporary traditional outfits, dancing around the homestead, lines of traditional gifting. Dress codes were a really important element of how... I think people exhibit that traditional values are very much still at play. So the girls, uh, this is a multiple, like multiple strings of fine beads. The, all the children that I spoke to reported were an anti-witchcraft measure. And witchcraft came up all the time in our, in our group conversations and very frequently. So the literature having said that it was obsolete, 
that didn't really seem to be the case. What did your experience change about your view of Christianity and what you were doing about them? Well, I think, I suppose for me, the main thing is that I'm interested in how reading through different lenses in terms of world views unlocks different things about texts. So in this context, say, it is the community extends beyond the living community to spirit community, etc., etc. That's, you know, an aspect of this particular worldview. For me, that then reading with people in that context means reading biblical texts about spirit engagement, let's say interactions with spirits. I really want to know what those people in that context have to say about that text. Because to me, that they've got an insight that I don't have because I don't ha come from a context where I feel I'm surrounded by spirits. Um, you know, a Western sort of scientific perspective wouldn't, wouldn't kind of lock into that. So for me, that I suppose there's not a particular thing um, about how I would view the Bible or view Christianity, but it more unlocked for me the potential of interpreting biblical texts in partnership with grassroots communities who come from worldviews that are markedly different from my own and which might share aspects or characteristics with the communities from which New Testament texts, for example, come. They talk about spirits, they talk about, um, you know, ancestors or whatever else. There are, there are shared aspects of worldview, so that, that's what really made the difference for me. I was just wondering, would you have done the living situation a little differently if you were going to do it again? I certainly know more about myself now. I know what my limitations are or what I would struggle with. So I've been back there repeatedly since I did this fieldwork and I find it easier and easier. I don't think I would do much differently other than perhaps eat with the family. I made the decision to buy my own food and to cook separately for financial reasons because I didn't want to impose myself. But I would do that differently because that's the longest moment of conversation because they're just working dawn till dusk. So yeah, I would definitely do that differently.